so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the ERLC Podcast. Today, you're just getting me, Brent Leatherwood Solo, because my colleague, Lindsay Nicolay, she is taking a well-deserved break this week. And so I am just coming to you by myself. But I'm hopeful uh, that this will be a helpful time for you because we will go over some of the articles that stand out for me this week uh, from the ERLC, as well as a few items in the news that we've been talking about around the office. And at the same time, we're going to introduce you to a friend of mine, Matt Hensley. He serves down in Texas, and he's done a lot of great work for the Southern Baptist Convention over the years. And I thought this might be a good opportunity to just interview him, learn a little bit more about his own personal life, his personal ministry that God has called him to, and the ways that he is building up the Southern Baptist Convention in the state of Texas. And then we'll close with a quick piece uh, from the lunchroom. The first piece that I want to highlight to you from our team at the RLC has to deal with a process called reconciliation. It's a bit of an arcane uh, procedural budgetary process that Congress uses oftentimes to pass fairly complex pieces of legislation, or in most cases when it's been used, it's actually been used as a budget spending or deficit spending measure. We'll talk about that in a minute. Over the last week, you may have read several news articles uh, about a piece of legislation called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So that's what our team is explaining here in this piece. And so let me just read for you uh, a bit of the piece. The Senate is delaying their long-awaited August recess to consider a major funding package. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 is a smaller version of President Biden's failed Build Back Better package that included over $2.4 trillion in new spending. The IRA introduces $485 billion in new spending on things such as energy subsidies, stricter tax enforcement, and health care provisions, and the bill promises to reduce deficits by $305 billion through 2031. Senators will spend their weekend debating and amending this large omnibus package using a complex legislative tool known as reconciliation. So you might be asking, well, you know, the scripture doesn't really tell us anything about what is the preferred method for uh, tax and budget policy in the United States Congress. And that's true. But, as we point out here, as Christians seek to be well-informed on the workings of our government, play an active role in our democracy, and ensure the well-being of our neighbors, it is important to more fully understand this complicated procedure. And so that's why uh, we decided to produce this piece on what exactly is reconciliation. 
It's been used a number of times before. As a matter of fact, over almost 50 years, Congress and the president have enacted 22 reconciliation packages, including deficit reduction bills in the 1980s and 90s, the Clinton Welfare Reform Package in 1996, the Bush tax cuts of 2001 and 2003, the Obama Affordable Care Act amendments in 2010, the Trump's tax cuts in 2017, and even the American Rescue Plan, supported by President Biden, in 2021. So needless to say, a lot of big ticket items, uh, high profile pieces of legislation have been used and uh, have been used to shepherd pieces of legislation through Congress that may have otherwise uh, not have made it to law. And the reason being is when you use the reconciliation process, it lowers the threshold to passage, particularly in the U.S. Senate, for those bills. I personally was a part of a reconciliation package back in 2005, and it is filled with long nights for Capitol Hill staffers uh, in Washington, D.C. I remember being up most of the night during a uh, budget markup, which is when you are actually uh, going through the legislation, and uh, my boss served on the budget committee. But it was it was an important thing because uh, we wanted to pass uh, some spending reductions, deficit reductions, and um, ultimately ended up being successful. President Bush signed that legislation into law after the the new year. So it was uh, it's a bit of a complex process, uh, but because uh, a major piece of legislation such as the Inflation Reduction Act is going through it, we thought it would make sense to essentially help inform Southern Baptists on what this means. The next article I wanted to highlight comes from our colleague, Jill Wagner, and it's called The Church's Need for Post-Abortive Ministry. In it, she interacts with Karen Ellison, who is the founder of Deeper Still, a retreat-based ministry that focuses on bringing healing and freedom to abortion-wounded hearts. So Karen Ellison was 22 years old when uh, she had an abortion and later as she began to lead a Bible study for post-abortive women, God led her on a journey of healing that resulted years later in the development of this ministry. And Jill talks to Karen uh, about her experience and how God used that brokenness and the healing that came from it to spur her to this area of ministry. And you know, the reality is, uh, particularly now that we are in a post-row environment, there's a number of great policy solutions out there that are either limiting abortions or banning abortions and saving lives in the process. There's more and more work being done on the policy front to serve women and families. Churches, which have always been active in this effort, are leading the efforts to serve mothers and families that are in crisis. But the reality is abortion is still going to be a part of our culture. It's still going to be a part of our society. And so churches and uh, ministries out there need to still be thinking through, how do we serve these women? How do we show them that there is a path forward for healing and redemption out of abortion? And this piece, I think, does a great job helping pastors, helping ministry leaders think through uh, ways that either they can engage uh, with an organization like Deeper Still, or maybe even create their own new ministries to come around and wrap around these individuals uh, who have suffered 
at the hands of the abortion industry uh, who targeted them, uh, who fed them the lie that the only way forward for them in life uh, is to actually end the life of their preborn child. And so I'm thankful uh, that Jill took some time here to just kind of interact with Karen Ellison, uh, learn a little bit more about Deeper Still, and maybe hopefully provide you as the reader with ways that you can do something to come around these women. All right, so as we begin the culture section, our first story comes to us from the Wall Street Journal, and it is about the story that has dominated headlines throughout the week, a search that has been conducted by federal investigators of uh, former President Donald Trump's property in West Palm Beach, Florida, known as Mar-a-Lago. From the Wall Street Journal story, it says, someone familiar with the stored papers at Mar-a-Lago told investigators there may be still more classified documents at the private club after the National Archives retrieved 15 boxes earlier in the year, people familiar with the matter said. And Justice Department officials had doubts that the Trump team was being truthful regarding what material remained at the property, one person said. Newsweek, a separate news outlet, earlier reported on the source of the FBI's information. Two months later, two dozen Federal Bureau of Investigation agents were back at Mar-a-Lago with a warrant predicated on convincing a federal magistrate judge that there was evidence a crime may have been committed. After hours at the property, the agents took the boxes away in a rider truck. The episode points to a sharp escalation in the Justice Department's inquiry into Mr. Trump, which also includes an investigation into the events leading up to the January 6th, 2021 riot on the United States Capitol. Well, look, as as you have read this, and it would be hard to have missed this this week, Uh, because it has dominated articles in newspapers, websites, cable news. Um, It it certainly would be hard to have missed this. Look, this is a huge development. There's really no other way to look at it. For federal investigators to go into the personal home of a former U.S. president, that really is is without precedent. We we haven't had uh, much like that, even going back to uh, Watergate. We haven't seen something quite like this. Now, that said, Donald Trump is the former president. That does make him a private citizen. And so in that sense, the FBI conducts searches of private residences, not necessarily routinely, but this isn't new ground for them. And the reality is we don't actually know much about what all transpired here. We know that They obviously feel that there is evidence that they need to obtain that was housed at Mar-a-Lago, and they convinced a federal judge to sign off on a search warrant, and we know that they took items uh, from the property. But we don't know much beyond that, and particularly we don't know if there were specific targets in mind, if there were other items found, uh, we don't even really know uh, which investigation uh, this is all tied to. The reality is there are multiple investigations uh, that that are going on that are related to former President Trump. So there is a lot uh, that we just don't quite know. There have been calls from, you know, a minority leader in the U.S. House, uh, Kevin McCarthy, for example, uh, he has put the FBI and the DOJ on notice 
that should Republicans uh, recapture the House, they will initiate uh, immediate hearings on uh, what DOJ has done here and what they were after. So he's told them to go ahead and preserve all of their paperwork and expect to be called up to the the, the Hill uh, for questioning. Uh, and I should note, there have actually been some bipartisan calls for the DOJ to explain themselves because this is fairly new ground uh, that that they are exploring here. I guess it's because of that, uh, because there isn't precedent here for going into the home of a, of a former president. It's precisely because of that uh, we can probably safely assume that this was signed off on, not just by the judge, but this was actually signed off on at the highest levels of the Department of Justice, uh, including, more than likely, by the Attorney General Merrick Garland himself. So all that to say, this was not undertaken lightly. This probably is a, a serious matter. And probably, more than likely, in the coming weeks or months, we will get some sort of an explanation uh, from the Department of Justice. Congress does routinely ask the Attorney General uh, to appear before the oversight committees. Uh, I would anticipate that will occur. And so uh, when that occurs, we may get uh, a better sense of what went into uh, the DOJ's actions here and what went into uh, them carrying this out. Until we get that, I would just urge caution. Uh, there have been a number of voices out there that have said uh, some alarming things. Um, look, this is certainly an important matter, and uh, I think we do deserve uh, an explanation. But uh, we also need to realize uh, these are federal investigators. They're, they're very well trained. Uh, so we should just withhold judgment until we know uh, exactly what they were after and, and where this leads. The next story comes to us from The Dispatch, and uh, it is titled, July Brings a Hint of Inflation Relief. The latest consumer price index numbers from the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, showed that on net, prices for the average American consumer didn't rise at all from June to July. Costs are still painfully and often prohibitively high, up 8.5% year-over-year, but the annual rate was down from 9.1% a month earlier, just a second such decline since the summer of 2021. Quote, this is a much better report than I expected, Harvard University economist Jason Furman said yesterday. This could easily be the false dawn that we saw in September of 2021, but for now, I'll take it as a tick in the good direction. The cooling was driven primarily by falling prices for fuel, clothing, public transportation, airline tickets, used car, and hotel rooms. Gas alone was 7.7% cheaper at the end of July than the beginning, and still falling fuel prices may continue to push down inflation. Related to that, I know that uh, just in the middle of this week, AAA confirmed that now, for the first time in a long time, the average price of gasoline is now under $4 a gallon. So that's more of a psychological uh, barrier that was crossed in, in a good way. But I know that a number of parts of the country are, are still feeling the, the pain at the pump. I, I think of, you know, in California or even in a state in Hawaii, it actually saw gas prices drop by about 21 cents. So there's still some of our neighbors out there that are facing very high gas prices and they're having to 
uh, face a, a squeeze in their family budget. But it does seem, at least for now, that maybe things are starting to ease slightly. And that's something I think we all can appreciate. And the final story I want to look at comes to us from the Indianapolis Star, the Indy Star. Uh, and it says this, a new abortion ban has been signed into law in Indiana. Governor Eric Holcomb signed a near total ban on abortion in Indiana on August 5th. And here's what you need to know. The ban will go into effect on September 15th. The law makes Indiana the first state to pass legislation of its kind in a special session since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The bill bans abortion at zero weeks, with narrow exceptions for rape, incest, fatal fetal abnormalities, plus the life and health of the mother. Victims of rape and incest have up until 10 weeks in their pregnancies to get an abortion. Abortions are also permitted when the long-term health and life of the mother are at risk, as well as for fatal fetal abnormalities. Uh, so this is noteworthy because, as it was reported, they are the first state uh, in Indiana. Leaders there are the first ones to push forward with a more of a pro-life uh, stance, if you will, that limits, if not nearly, bans abortion. And that is something that we as pro-life Christians, we can be thankful for. And so anytime uh, we can get legislation that, that saves lives, and uh, we want to make sure that's followed up with laws that serve mothers, um, that is a good thing, and, and that is something to be appreciative of. And I bring up this matter because uh, we have added on our ERLC Dobbs resource page. It's the, the part of the website that we created following the Dobbs decision in June to serve as kind of a, a central resource on some of the pro-life initiatives and pro-life resources that we're creating at the ERLC, we have just recently updated that to create what is more or less, think of a, a, a brief news ticker. Uh, it's in the middle of the page uh, that just kind of serves as a, a central place for as these pro-life developments or developments in the area of life uh, are coming up, whether it's at the federal level, the state level, uh, whether it is actions by the administration, uh, whether it is uh, decisions made by the courts, we've got a place where you um, can keep up with these latest developments. And let's be honest, now that we are in this post-Roe world, the effects uh, stemming from the Dobbs decision are far and wide. Some states are moving forward, like Indiana, with a much more pro-life posture. And then there are other states like California or Vermont that are moving forward with uh, more of a pro-choice posture. And Christians need to be aware of what all is going on. And so we hope that this resource page, which can be found at erlc.com slash Dobbs, is helpful to you. So that wraps up just a few of the, the pieces and the items in the news that uh, we are paying attention to. And now I want to go into our interview with my friend, Matt Hensley. All right, well, as I mentioned before with Lindsay out, I wanted to have on uh, someone to interview and someone who I think you and our audience will find particularly interesting. And that is Matt Hensley. I'm going to let Matt give uh, his kind of own personal bio here because I always think it's interesting what folks emphasize. 
But I just want to say, Matt is a true servant of Christ. Uh, he serves in Texas, in and he served in the SBC, actually, in any number of different ways. Uh, and we're going to explore a little bit of that today. But I've come to know Matt over the, the last year, and truly, uh, he is a godly servant, putting others before himself and wanting to build up the church. He has such a passion for that. And that's why I thought it would be helpful if we spent a few minutes with Matt, learn a little bit more about him and uh, what God has called him to uh, in his ministry. So, so Matt, welcome to the ERLC podcast. Hey, it is so good to be on here, even if you are an Atlanta Braves fan. And, and to give you like a short personal bio, I kind of am reminded of the Parks and Rec quote where it says, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing it really well. Uh, that's, that's kind of what I feel like has been my life. I've done a lot of things, uh, whether recording artist, author, you know, preacher, youth pastor, kids, pastor, worship pastor, all the different things, the different hats that I've worn, but it kind of goes back to being born in California, adopted by my grandparents and moved to the great Republic of Whataburger known as uh, Texas and uh, being raised there and kind of raised with sort of the older generation, if you will, you know, the friends of my, you know, my mom and dad. So I was surrounded by people that were maybe musicians or businessmen or, or pastors and so forth. And so had always really had a knack for just being interested in doing a lot of things and a lot of different things. And so that kind of brings us to today. I still get to preach, still pastor in a, you know, kind of a volunteer part-time role with, with my local church at First Farmersville. I also serve as the associational mission strategist uh, for the Colin Baptist Association. I'm actually coming up on my one-year anniversary in a couple of weeks now. And uh, so we're loving Texas, and I've got a beautiful wife, and we've uh, four wonderful daughters that are 11, 12, 14, and 15. And so all of your listeners can pray for us because they're all girls. And uh, we had said our kids were going to come potty trained, and we would have a drama-free house. And our kids did come potty trained because they were four, five, six, and seven when they came, but they're all girls. And so it's anything but a drama-free house. So that's kind of the me in a nutshell. So, Well, as you're alluding to, those four girls are adopted. Mm-hmm. And um, you started off uh, talking about uh, my Braves loyalty, uh, but you failed to mention uh, who you are a fan of because that's actually a little complicated. It, it is a little complicated. This is complicated, but I also feel like it risks you getting like one-star reviews or something if you would have a Houston Astros fan on the show and people would just start, you know, naturally banging on trash cans and so forth. But yes, I'm a huge Houston Astros fan and I was raised about 3.1 miles from the ballpark in Arlington. So I was kind of naturally a hometown fan of the Rangers. And so I have this complicated relationship now with baseball because I I love the Astros. I love Houston, uh, but also home is Dallas-Fort Worth. and This is where we live. And so I get to see them play a lot. Uh, but one of my best friends is a huge Texas Rangers fan. So I have become like enemy number one uh, <laughs> to Texas Ranger fans everywhere. So Yeah, it may strike some that the ethics entity of the Southern Baptist Convention is uh, interviewing a Houston Astros fan uh, given their ethical lapse a few seasons ago. But we'll let that pass. Uh, because of all the good work that you've done for well, Southern Baptist it. churches, yeah. So actually, let's let's start there. You are coming off of serving as the president of the pastors' conference for the SBC. So you're now, I think, it's the immediate past president 
of the pastors' conference. And uh, so for maybe some of those folks in our audience uh, who aren't familiar with the pastors' conference, maybe they've not been able to be a messenger or attend one of our annual meetings, what is the pastors' conference? What function does it serve in the SBC? I think the easiest way to describe it is, is at least what it's intended to do is to really set the tone for the annual meeting. So it's the two days preceding the annual meeting in the same room as the annual meeting. And so Sunday and Monday, kind of all afternoon and evening on Sunday, all day on, on Monday, we get together for, for preaching. And every year, of course, a different president is going to have a different theme and maybe a model and, and all of that sort of thing. But for us, we were going to go verse by verse through an entire book of the Bible and really kind of unite the people in attendance around our call to proclaim him and uh, in the unity that we really have in that, that all of our churches are different, different sizes, different contexts, different everything. And, and that's what's in the room there too. Big churches, small churches, rural churches, city churches, and that's what the SBC is. And so I really thought that the pastor's conference could set the tone for the SBC annual meeting by uniting us around what we do have in common to proclaim Christ, to advance the kingdom and all of that is Southern Baptist. And uh, and so, yes, yeah, just a two-day conference right before the annual meeting that usually have preachers from a wide variety of backgrounds and so forth. All of ours were Southern Baptists from churches as small as 50 up to about 3,500 and uh, rural city, all of that sort of thing. So, you know, I think most people when they hear of a conference that folks from around the country come to, they think of some sort of like, you know, practical, professional thing. So you're not necessarily uh, gathering folks together at the pastors, like here, here's how to serve the Lord's Supper. But instead, you you are offering a time uh, for really for pastors to learn from uh, others from around the country, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what I realize is, especially coming out of COVID and the pandemic, and, and even before that, you know, I was going to be uh, nominated before kind of COVID hit. And I guess God was like, no, I'm going to send a pandemic so he can't be the president of the pastor's conference. I don't know if that was exactly it or theologically correct. But uh, I just realized that even before the pandemic, ministry is hard. It's really awesome. It's a blessing. You get a front row seat of all that God is doing and all, all of that. But you also have a, a front row seat of, of the attacks of the enemy, the difficulties in, in marriages of people that you shepherd, people dying, all, all of that that happens. And so a lot of times people are coming to Anaheim or you know next year in New Orleans, where, wherever we gather as Southern Baptists, that a lot of those uh, people are pastors uh, or their wives that are coming with them. And they're, they're just struggling, you know, many, many of them. Some of them are thriving, all of that, but many of them are struggling. And certainly coming out of COVID-19, I thought, you know, yes, we could get in there and, and encourage people around a certain topic or, or a theme or, or whatever it might be. But I really thought, you know what, what if we gave two full days of just steady encouragement from God's Word and let those people just kind of get to sit and just soak in uh, that faithful preaching from people that were just like them and in seasons just like them too. You know, whether big church, small church, we were we were all affected by the exact same thing, but certainly in different ways. And uh, but yet we all still tried to do everything we could uh, during the pandemic to continue to preach the word and advance the kingdom. And, and yet we were all tired. And so just to get them all in that room to pray over them, to sing with them, to just encourage them with gospel preaching, uh, I thought was what uh, we needed most in, in that season coming out of COVID. Well, as, as someone who was able to 
uh, be in several of the sessions, uh, I think you absolutely accomplished your mission. Uh, it was a, a great pastor's conference, uh, no doubt. Uh, let's focus in actually on your the leadership of the pastor's conference. You know, obviously by being elected to that position, you know, you're, you're kind of given this uh, national perch of leadership, if you will. Um, talk about what your experience was like conceptualizing the conference, you know, spreading the word about it, getting folks to, to get excited about it, organizing it. What sorts of um, things did you learn about yourself and about the, the broader SBC? So the very first thing that was said to me after being elected was congratulations, now go raise half a million dollars. That was probably the wake up call. I mean, I knew there was fundraising and I knew the amount. I mean, I knew that, but that was like, you know, you, you have these dreams that I can't wait to, to pick the preachers, pick the music, you know, have a great theme, all of that kind of stuff. And, and that's what I really thrive doing. But that kind of constant pressure to raise funds and, and so forth into not like we hadn't really had one that totally failed and went off the rails. And so I was like, I don't want to be the first guy that's, you know, bankrupts, you know, the pastor's conference or something or or have the executive committee, you know, have to send out, you know, debt collectors to my house or something. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know what happened if I didn't raise the money. So there was a lot of pressure. And so it did kind of teach me one of the things that I struggle with is I think what some people naturally struggle with at times is truly trusting God uh, to provide for for something he has called you to. And uh, and so there were nights where, you know, 11, 12 at night, I'm like, who else can I ask? Who? What else can I do? Is this even going to happen? Am I going to have to just raise the white flag and say, I just can't do this? Uh, there were times like that, that I think God just kept uh, you know, impressing on me this, this, you know, idea that he'd called me to this, that he was equipping me for this. And it was also going to help me as a leader, not just for this season, but for maybe the rest of my, my ministry. And so that's a part of my role now as an associational uh, mission strategist is raising funds and so forth and helping churches raise funds and so forth. And so I was seeing that not in the moment, but, but God was kind of showing me after and, and as this progressed. And so so yes, it's it's like a whole lot of pressure. It put me in a under a spotlight that I wasn't necessarily used to. I, I have a fairly large, you know, social media presence and so forth, even from the middle of nowhere of Mayhill. Uh, but it certainly puts you out there where whatever decision you made, fifty percent of the people were going to hate it, fifty percent of the people were going to love it. I mean, it's just part of leadership. So it just reminded me of that and the call to just do what you're called to do, to be faithful. Uh, in making those decisions and just trust God with the results. And I had to finally get to the point of just sort of letting go. Like I was going to still work, you know, still serve, all of that kind of stuff, but letting go of just trying to fix everything myself and really trust God to just take steady steps of obedience with Him and do the right thing and trust Him with the results from it. And so it's something that it was a great honor. I had a blast and I'm happy to never, ever ever do it again. And uh, and so so that was the experience. It was wonderful. It was a blessing. I had a blast. I was thrilled. It was in Anaheim, which was right up the road from where I was born. That was kind of cool. But yeah, it was, a, it, it was a great honor. Thrilled with it. Happy to never do it again. And now you've uh, handed over the reins of responsibility to Daniel Dickard and, and his team uh, for next year's Pastors Conference. 
would you say that, you know, if if you're a messenger or someone who is attending future annual conferences, is it something they should maybe get there a little early for and, and check out the pastor's conference, even if they're not a pastor? I think so. Absolutely. And, uh, and I know with, uh, you know, Dr. Dickard's, you know, approach and his theme, which he announced, you know, much earlier, I was kind of trying to revitalize the pastor's conference. We hadn't had it because the, you know, COVID canceled uh, the annual meeting in Orlando, and then Nashville was a little bit of a different one. I think we had the SEND conference for that one. And uh, so I was kind of rebooting it. And so I was steadily, you know, releasing different parts and, and so forth with him. The theme's already out there, and it's one that all of us are called to, and that's our kingdom character and, uh, and the fruits of the Spirit, all of that sort of deal that, that comes with that, the Beatitudes. And so I think that's one that everyone would benefit from. Uh, but it's it's also, in, in my opinion, is a chance where you can get in the room for two days with no pressure. Uh, you're not having to make decisions. Uh, you're not having to listen to motions or resolutions or hear people at mics or wonder what's happening, what's out of order. It's just two days uh, where all of that kind of stuff is put on, you know, on the shelf for a little bit. And you just get to be in the room with your brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they're pastors or missionaries or retired pastors or pastor wives or whatever it might be. You can meet people. You know, there's usually opportunities where you're just milling around and visiting with one another. And so I, I think it is absolutely valuable for people of all ages and people, whether they are pastors or lay leaders or just regular church members that came as a messenger, absolutely would be beneficial. So moving on, you mentioned in your day-to-day life that you guide the Colin Baptist Association. Uh, So uh, some of our folks may not really understand uh, the role of association. So what's that like uh, as you are the director there? And what's the biggest challenge you face in that role? Man, what it's like is every day is completely and totally different uh, because I may have, you know, coffee, you know, on Monday with a pastor that just found out, you know, his his wife has cancer. Uh, The next day I might be leading a church revitalization consultation with a church that has declined down to five or six people and are barely hanging on. You know, the next day I might be in a meeting of prospective uh, church planters and, and the next day I might be having... Uh, lunch with the denominational leader. Every single day, every single week is completely different. And and that's also kind of the challenge because each day I have to kind of know, is this the day that I'm primarily encouraging somebody that's, you know, really struggling, barely hanging on or or feels kind of disconnected or isolated? And am I trying to cheer them on and, and, and help them? Am I going to be more equipping of this pastor or, or helping this church maybe see the bigger picture of what they need to be doing to advance the kingdom? Uh, am I networking maybe church planters with potential fundraising opportunities or churches that can help partner with them or, or finding the demographics that maybe would be a best? You know, we have people that will come like, hey, I feel called to plant. I don't really have a particular area. Do you know an area that's really without a good, solid gospel presence and and they just kind of put their yes on the on the altar with God and say where where do I need to be and so to help them find maybe demographically uh, with a strategy of where might a pocket be that just really doesn't have a strong gospel presence and so you kind of encourage them there and, and help them find a space and then you know, the next day kind of networking perhaps with denominational leaders so that means usually I'm dressing up a little bit more <laughs> and I'm not in my you know NAM t-shirt or IMB you know, knit shirt or whatever it might be. And so 
you know, having to relate to them as well and, and hearing maybe what's going on. And in our case in Texas, of course, we have two conventions. So uh, hearing what's going on in the BGCT or Texas Baptist and then hearing what's going on in the SBTC and relating that to our churches in our association that may be a part of either one of those or or both of those. And so the the fun part of it is that every day is absolutely different. That's also the challenge of it to know kind of what hat am I putting on the the Barnabas hat that's just encouraging, you know, the the Paul kind of approach of finding that younger pastor or planner where he can go and serve and, and everything in between. And so it's it's a whole lot of fun, a whole lot of work keeps me interested and engaged because like I said, every day is different. And there's a natural side of fundraising and and being able to share with maybe a larger church that may not necessarily need our resources of pulpit supply or video help or communications help or, or whatever it might be, help them see the value of plugging into the association where maybe they can offer support to some of our churches too. So, so it's just really that very localized level of we are better together right in our backyard with all of the churches that might be a mile from us or 20 miles from us and see what we can accomplish together. Yeah, you know that reminds me. That this isn't necessarily going to be a a, the, a clean analogy, but in the political world, you know, traditional conservatives have always kind of said something along the lines of the best form of government is the government that is closest to the people. And in some ways, I I think that there's a parallel there with what you're talking about with our associations. Um, look, you know, our, our pastors, they are deeply involved in shepherding their people in, in very personal instances. And we obviously uh, want them to be engaged in their community, but they may just not have the margin to know about the community, you know, a couple of towns over. And, you know, obviously from some place here like the ERLC, I would not have the competency to know where a church could be best planted in the, within the parameters of the, the Colin Baptist Association. But someone like you, who's kind of directing all this, you have a sense of that. And I think, gosh, what, a, what an incredible resource for our pastors. And Maybe you've kind of already answered my my next question, which is, you know, why are healthy associations important in Baptist life? And I think maybe part of your answer is you're the person who's, you know, not down at the very micro level. You're just a notch above that, and that gives you the ability to see the broader field. And I just, gosh, I, I think in the world that we're in, where so many important decisions are happening in our local communities, associations can play a huge role in that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, actually a conversation that I had yesterday with a, with a pastor is, you know, we, we say often uh, that the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, are each of our local churches. But at the same time, each of those are not just kingdoms in and of themselves. You know, even the largest of them uh, have a part to play in the greater Great Commission, uh, certainly globally and even uh, more narrowly through the Southern Baptist Convention. And so with that, it's kind of this role of a liaison, if you will, that for our guys that maybe are more bivocational or even we've we've got some in our association that are trivocational, uh, that Saturday night uh, they're wrapping up their second job and they go home, they kind of read over a text and then they get ready to kind of explain it in the very simplest of terms. And I think that is some of the most faithful preaching that we have in our association because he's serving his family well, and he's still serving that church well, loving them well, leading them well. 
But this is a guy that doesn't have the time to read the different articles that are coming out uh, from the ERLC. This is a guy that doesn't have the time to see how many churches are planted by NAM or how many missionaries are being sent or or the different disaster relief things that are going. Some of them will pick it up here and there, but sometimes it's just where we get together for for coffee or lunch or, or just hanging out in his office or sometimes at his house just visiting with one another. It's like, you know, so what's going on in the SBC? That's, you know, I'll hear that a lot. What's happening in the SBC? And so I just kind of get to give them a, a taste of the different kind of milestones or, or things that are happening uh, throughout there. But but it's also this this role of kind of being that chief encourager or that chief Barnabas around here that it's something that I've realized is that the more healthy churches that we have, uh, then the stronger association that we have, the, the more stronger associations that we have, the more stronger our state conventions are and the more stronger that our state conventions are, then the stronger our Southern Baptist convention are. And so it really is, you know, the headquarters of the SBC down in the local church. And so working with them, encouraging them, helping them grow and thrive and strengthen and revitalize or plant or whatever it might be, then then our association grows and thrives and revitalizes and so forth. And then our state conventions here, you know, we've got the two of them that I mentioned, they grow and they thrive and they strengthen as our local churches are being strengthened. And that just works all its, you know, all the way up. But it, it's just, a, you know, just to underscore something you said, you talked about instances where you know of pastors who are working multiple jobs and then faithfully coming in to preach the word. I, I mean, those gentlemen, those pastors, uh, those leaders, they're the actual backbone of the SVC. And just because of the way you describe their life, right, they don't have time to get on Twitter, uh, which is just another reminder that that Twitter is not real life. And they are just faithfully serving uh, the flock that God has given them, and 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 praise God that they continue to do that. And they have someone like you uh, that can be a resource, uh, can be an encourager. Uh, that's that's just wonderful. All right. So as we begin to wrap up, I, I want to touch on this. Um, you, in the wake of the uh, incredible Dobbs decision uh, that came down from the Supreme Court earlier this summer. You shared a very personal piece. In fact, I think you told me at the time it was, it was the first time you had shared publicly uh, your story. And I just want to spend a few moments just talking about that briefly. And I, I guess I'll lead off with this. By virtually any definition, you are pro-life. Uh, what made you such an advocate for life? I, you know, one is biblical. Uh, and, and as a student of the, you know, the word, that kind of deal, of course, I'm going to be uh, an advocate for for pro life. That's you know that's that's commanded in my opinion and and so forth. But it's also I, I say often in, in preaching that there's that connection between what we know and what we feel and and what we believe and and all of that's you know sort of thing. That for me it's also traces back to my own you know personal life. Uh, you know I mentioned in, in the bio part where where I was kind of joking around about, you know, not knowing what I'm doing, but doing it very well. I was born in San Bernardino, California to a teen mom uh, that had run away from home and uh, and kind of got wrapped up into a life that, you know, she probably didn't want to be in, uh, certainly wasn't raised to be in, but found herself in that life. And, uh, but by God's grace, uh, my grandparents had found me, found the situation and so forth. And while also trying to help her, felt one of the ways to help her was to also uh, be able to give me a you know a fresh start, a new start, and and so they adopted me, and so it it wasn't something that my parents ever 
talked about. You know, I mean, we talked about being adopted, all, all of that. You know, I knew that, but it's not something that they ever really just championed, you know, in terms of adoption. It was more of this thing that I just assumed uh, that's what Christians do. They find someone in need and, and they find how they can help. And in this case, what my mom needed was for me uh, to be raised by uh, her mom and dad. And so I, it was just something that was kind of ingrained in me, not so much with words, but with actions. And I guess just something that was a part of my life. And then, you know, growing up then as a teen, we had a great crisis pregnancy uh, center there in Grand Prairie. And, uh, and then also a very pivotal moment in student ministry when I was still just a student in high school, uh, where we had one of our youth group members that uh, found out she was pregnant. And uh, this was, you know, a Baptist church, a very conservative Baptist church. And, you know, I didn't know what, how a church was supposed to respond or, or you know, but I've heard ways that churches have responded and so forth that weren't so great. But in this case, we just enveloped her with with love and grace and support and and all of that, helping them thrive and you know gathering up you know goods for for her like you know diapers and all of that uh, sort of thing. And so she didn't get you know the 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 judgment. She got grace and and help in that moment. And so that really was another kind of reinforcement of that mentality of like finding somebody that's that's hurting or struggling or, or in a situation that maybe they hadn't planned and just doing what we can as a Christian to, to meet those needs and, and help them in that kind of circumstance. And then fast forward, you know, I shared in the article uh, about our life, we had uh, two miscarriages and I, I always had this great plan even before I was married that I was going to have two kids and adopt two kids. Like that was my grand plan for my life. And I can't really point that back to because I was adopted or whatever. That's just what I believe I wanted to do and then what I thought uh, we should do. And uh, we had those two miscarriages. And then fast forward, we're in Texas and we start foster care and adoption training and, and then became foster parents and so forth and continue to be active in the local crisis pregnancy centers and so forth. And we just always were available and seeking those opportunities to serve and to advocate and to raise money and, and all of that for, for that kind of a situation. And uh, then we were able to uh, be placed with a sibling group of four. Uh, and at the time in our state and our agency, we were the only family that had the license for four and the room for four. And so, I, you know, in the very, you know, the moment, I'm just deciding to say yes to these four girls. But but later through my quiet times and so forth, I'm also reminded what God was doing, even through the difficulty and the hurt and the pain of miscarriages and so forth, is that that day uh, he was preparing for us to have our, our four girls. And so that was something foster care and, and adoption and, and helping. It just kind of became one of our, our ministries and just thinking through how we can champion that where, you know, maybe you're. 75 or 80 and and that's not the season to be you know adopting a one-year-old perhaps but it's also a season where maybe you can become respite care for a uh, a foster care family or or raise funds or or gather supplies for them there's just something that every christian can do to help in in this case you know talking about what we're talking about uh young mothers uh, or prospective mothers that may be in a situation where that wasn't what they planned and so kind of going back to you know, my grandparents, who, who I call my mom and dad, seeing their daughter in need and meeting that need, and uh, which in turn kind of changed the course of my life. 
Yeah, no, I will link uh, to this piece uh, in our show notes, but I, I love that you continually return to this theme of doing something uh, in your piece. And, and it comes from exactly what you just said. Your grandparents, when they learned about the situation with your mom, they, they learned that she was pregnant, they vowed to do something. And you go on to talk about all that they did do uh, by God's grace and and your evidence uh, of what all they were able to do. And then you write later in your piece, as Christians continue moving forward in a post-row world, we need to remember we can't do everything, but each of us can do something. And that's important. And um, praise God, there are millions of Christians out there uh, who are willing to do something and do something each and every day. And that's that's just going to be all the more important as we continue moving forward in this post-row world. So, Matt, I'm thankful that you uh, wrote down uh, those thoughts, and I'm thankful that you uh, made some time to join us today. Uh, I, I led off by introducing you as a servant of Christ. Your servant heart uh, has come through loud and clear uh, in this time together, and I'm just really appreciative of you, brother. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. Absolutely. And for our final section with the podcast today, there's an important story that you may have missed just because of all of these other major items in the news. But there's something uh, particularly important that Southern Baptists need to be aware of. Uh, So this final thing that we've talked about uh, in the lunchroom uh, or amongst our team here at the RLC uh, was this that was reported by Baptist Press. Uh, Bart Barber, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, has named the full membership of the Abuse Task Force. Uh, He had previously said that Marshall Blaylock, senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Charleston, South Carolina, will serve as the Implementation Task Force chair, and that Mike Keobone, pastor of First Baptist Church in Lawton, Oklahoma, will serve as the vice chair. This week, he named the other remaining task force members, and they are Todd Bankert, who's the pastor and lead elder of Oak Creek Community Church in Indiana. Melissa Bowen, member of First Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Brad Eubank, senior pastor of Petal First Baptist Church in Petal, Mississippi. Cindy Lott, member of the Catawba Valley Baptist Church in Morgantown, North Carolina. John Nelson, who's the lead pastor of Soma Community Church in Missouri. And Greg Wills, member of Travis Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas, and who also serves as the dean of the School of Theology at Southwestern Seminary. Messengers to the annual meeting in Anaheim tasked Barber with the responsibility of forming this task force as part of the approved recommendations from the original sexual abuse task force that was chaired by North Carolina pastor Bruce Frank. The recommendations were the result of a year-long study and investigation by Guidepost Solutions into the SBC Executive Committee. Barber said this, The purpose of this task force is to assist the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention in our efforts to shut the doors of our churches to those who would act as sexual predators and to wrap our arms around survivors and those who love them. And I bring this up because, um, you know, as I mentioned, this, this may have been lost in the news of this week, but... This is some of the most important ongoing work uh, that is being conducted right now uh, in our convention of churches, whether it's some of the work that that we're doing at the RLC or whether it is this task force or implementing the recommendations that messengers approved in Anaheim at this summer's annual meeting, getting this right and uh, stopping sexual abuse before it occurs or 
you know, Lord forbid, after uh, it might occur, helping to come around those uh, who have been affected by it. Uh, this is vital for the long-term health of the SBC. And, uh, you know, Matt Hensley in his interview, uh, he talked about how he's a, a member and sometimes preaches uh, at First Baptist Farmersville. Well, he is a member of the church that is uh, led by Bart Barber. And I am just so thankful that uh, God has called him to lead the SBC at this time and continue forth uh, with this important work. And so I'm glad that we now have a full implementation task force. Uh, this is a strong group of individuals uh, who are now led by Marshall Blaylock, who is an incredible uh, leader, pastor at First Baptist in, in Charleston, South Carolina, and just know that our heart at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is to serve this task force, come alongside them in any way that we can, and continue to produce resources that serve pastors, that serve ministry leaders, uh, that help Christians continue this work and implement the best policies or think through these issues in the best, most biblically appropriate ways to serve survivors and to make sure that our churches are safe from abuse and safe for survivors. And so I just wanted to highlight this uh, because, like I said, this is some of the most important ongoing work for our convention. And um, this is a good thing. And I look forward to uh, the additional work that will come from this task force in the weeks and months ahead. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode of the ERLC podcast. And I know that we look forward to being with you again next week when my colleague Lindsay will be right back here, fully recharged and ready to go back from her break. And who knows what exciting tales uh, she will bring from her home life. Uh, we'll probably get a Marion update. Uh, so anyways, thank you for listening. And as always, you can check out more of our resources at ERLC.com. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.